we all have a great creative commission. Like podcasting is your art form or conversation is your art form. Everybody has something that they just feel fully alive in. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Have you ever felt like you're sitting at the kids' table when it comes to walking with God? That maybe you're not getting something that everyone else is, and that no matter how hard you try, you just don't seem to be able to connect with God in the way that they indicate you should? Or maybe you're a person who desires to use your gifts for the kingdom of God, but haven't felt that your gifts were valued or as important to the kingdom because you're a creative person. Maybe you enjoy art or dance or singing, whatever it might be. Our faith is one that is valued knowledge. And that's a fantastic thing. I'm all about it. I do a show with knowledge being dispensed all the time. But in placing such a high value on knowledge, many have actually neglected other parts of who we are as God's image bearers. And in doing so, have closed off many Christians from feeling that they are valuable for God's mission. If that is your feeling, then let me tell you that you're not alone. And let me honestly say this, God values you. There is a reason that God made us to be creative beings. In fact, while knowledge is a prized thing within evangelicalism, and we celebrate that, I mean, we as an organization want to give people the right information that they need for transformation. But we recognize that we are more than just information bearers. We want to be able to be creative, to help people understand and know God in a greater way. And part of that means tapping into the full brain of who we are. As a matter of fact, neuroscience in recent years has started to reveal things that God has already laid out in his word. And that's why we've had certain guests on the show that have helped us to see spiritual formation. Men like Jim Wilder or Marcus Warner or Michael Hendricks or Charles Stone. All of these men have come together to help us to see the power and what is going on with our brains and how God has made our brains to help explore our walks with him. But we're not just brains on sticks. As a matter of fact, God has created the imagination. And that's why we've talked to people like Karen Swallow Pryor or Malcolm Geit. And today we are honored to welcome Amy Howley Pearson to the show. Amy is the founder of Burning Heart Workshops, a soul care ministry, and is the former executive director of the Spiritual Formation Alliance. She's a writer, speaker, artist, mom, and grandma of two. She lives in the Denver area with her hilarious husband, Bill, and their ridiculous golden retriever. But before we get to my conversation with Amy, it is that time of year again, a time that we stop and give thanks. We recognize all that God has done, how he has used you over the past year. Your gifts have enabled Christians to be renewed and others to be equipped in their missionary encounter with Western culture. As the church in America across the West continues to decline, we're finding that so many people are doing the same old methodologies that have been done over and over and over again. We're saying that no, the cultural topography has shifted 
And it's not that the message of Jesus has changed. No, the truth of the word of God is always there. But how we communicate it into the mind of the unbelieving world and how we walk with God in the middle of this modern culture, that has shifted. And we want to be able to equip you so that you might be able to fulfill the mission that God has for you where you are. And for those who have partnered with us, thank you. For those who have not yet partnered with us, now is your opportunity to help Apollos Water become what God intends it to be. He has given us a vision of establishing an academy. He's given us a vision of going out to different churches across the United States, actually throughout the West, to write books, to write material, to help equip Christians, leaders, and churches in this moment as they have their own missionary encounter with Western culture. And this year, we want to raise $53,000 to end this year in the black and propel us forward so that we might develop several other offerings to help equip you to fulfill God's mission for your life. Simply click the link in the show notes or go to apolloswater.org slash donate to join what God is building to equip Christians in this chaotic cultural moment. With that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Amy Howley Pearson. Happy listening. Amy Pearson, welcome to Apollo's Watered. <laughs> Thank you so much, Travis. It's good to be with you. I'm excited about our conversation, but you know, because you've listened to the show before, before we do that, we have our Fast Five. And are you ready for the Fast Five? Ready. Okay, here we go. Number one, outside of the Bible, what is the biggest book that has influenced your life? Uh... Probably The Sacred Romance by John Eldridge. Hmm. We've not had John on the show, but I think I need to get John on the show. That'd, That'd be, be a great. Good conversation. Good conversation. Yeah. Number two, I know you also write about being a grandmother on the show, <laughs> in the book. And you, so here's the one thing that you do that your grandchildren absolutely love that no one else can do. That no one else can do. We're not as good as grandma. Put it that way. Grandma does her thing, you know? Yeah, grandma does. Grandma does not bake, so that wouldn't be it. Um, grandma, grandma has dance parties. <laughs> With the kids, do you just pick what what song do you have them dance to? How about that? Well, I have a playlist. I have some some classics. Um, now I'm going to blank out the name, but uh, coming in hot. I get, I mean, I didn't come up with these by myself, but <laughs> grandson's favorite. Okay. <laughs> I actually had a dance party with my kids the other night. So I, I fully appreciate, actually, I was dancing. They weren't. So maybe it wasn't a dance party as much as it was. What's dad doing now? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Memories. They'll remember that. They'll remember that. All right. Number three, if there was any artist that you could meet from history and have coffee or tea with, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Probably Tussaud. Um, he, he came about, I want to say it was the 1880s, and people didn't care for his style because they thought he was too cinematic. He has a picture of... Peter and John running to the tomb on Easter morning and just really studying the gesture and the expressions. It's, 
like there's something for everyone to connect with in it. And, mm-hmm. and it was criticized that that was just, it was just too real. And I love that about his work. How do you spell his name? T-I-S-S-O-T or O-T? I've seen, I've seen it. I don't know if I've registered his work, but I've seen the name. Yeah, he's got some great, beautiful work. I wonder if it's because he was coming right after the Impressionists and they're like, eh. Yeah, I think that's very much, yeah, he was kind of rejected because of that, but I really like his stuff. Hmm. All right. Well, here's number four. You also wrote at the conclusion of your book about your husband being hilarious. <laughs> so here's the question. The funniest thing that my husband that has ever done is what? Well, the funniest thing is, is when we first met, we were at a golf tournament that was a very exclusive golf tournament. And literally we just met. And he went to yawn and he belched. And my response was, bring it up again and we'll take a vote on it. And there was no, no calming, no calming the laughter. So he, he just kind of goes with the flow. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, who's yawn? He yawned or what? Say that again. Yawned. Oh, he he yawned and then he belched. Yes, but he's. (laughs) He he is always good for a laugh. That was not intentional that time. Oh. <laughs> Nate Berg is his hero. So if you don't know Nate, go listen to Nate and you'll understand my husband more. <laughs> oh, got it. All right. Okay. That helps to know those kind of things. You know, it's always funny what people think. It's, you hear about different people, how they interacted, how they met. You just <laughs> Some of these stories, you're like, I don't know how you ever made it. When, I know. When you hear how people start, but. I love the story. All right, here's here's question number five. Here we go. Yes, ready. If you if you could be any type of art form, movement, or style, what would it be, and why? Oh gosh, any kind. Mm-hmm. I'd probably be a dancer because you know there's a dance theme going on. But I love movement, and more the more I study about our creativity and the embodiment of it, the more I'm just like, man, I gotta, I gotta move more. I gotta really Mm. be in body more. So yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be sculpture because that's too stationary. I'd want to move. I always find (laughs) it fascinating how people describe and what they describe and why. (laughs) To me, you learn so much about people. You're like, wait a minute. Wow. They like to move around. They like to be engaged. I mean, because people describe themselves. That's one of the most brilliant things about this. Well, let's talk (laughs) about your book, Makers in a Thinker's World. What was it that made you write this book? This book came out of just a lifelong journey of feeling like I was at the children's table because I have grown up around some amazing thinkers and some really sincere believers and lovers of Jesus. But I didn't see my way of being with God in their way of being in the world. And that doesn't mean that they weren't awesome. It's just, I didn't, there was something missing for me. And when it came down to it, I, I can carry an intellectual tune in a bucket. I I know I can, but it's not where my heart soars. So 
I went and got a certificate in spiritual formation and had this idea that um, at some point the clouds would part and I would get a formal invitation to the grown-up table. And what ended up happening is I really became more convinced than ever that I needed to invite more kids around my table and more of the thinkers around around my table because Jesus was was sitting with this little child. <laughs> and um, it's really where the joy is. And, and all the research points to that's where the joy is, is in relationship and in the things that bring us joy. That helps us point to Jesus. So what do you mean by makers? Help people to think that. You've kind of delineated between the intellectual, these thinkers that are there, and yet you're talking about these makers. What do you mean by the makers? Well, makers, I think when most people think about makers or creatives, they think about a final product. And I've I've come to embrace the idea that whatever is creative is what lights you up. It's it's your light on a hill, as it were, that draws people to you. It's a magnet um, for you to just display God's incredible, lavish grace that he's given your life. Again, it delights you. It lights you up. You you can talk about it all day long. You can just live it all day long, flow with it. And people can't not notice that. It doesn't have to be obnoxious, but it's just it, you shine. And that that's the Holy Spirit embodied in you. Now, are you calling it these makers that light up? And I, I'm resonating with this because there are certain things that I would never have to be paid for because I just want to talk about it all day. It's part of the reason why I created this show. I just, I, I love the idea of culture and spiritual formation and what God is doing in the world, all of these different pieces together. Some people though are much more on just the head knowledge, the doctrine of the Christian faith. And we're not saying that that's a bad thing. We're saying right. that there's more to us than just heads on a stick. There is this creative part to us. As you said, that's kind of relegated you as you felt metaphorically to the kids table. Uh And it's helping those see that there's a lot more to this in this life than just our heads on a stick in which we can glorify God. Correct? Yeah. I really, uh, if there was ever something that was vying for a title (laughs) with what I ended up with, it was the idea that we all have a great creative commission. Like podcasting is your art form or conversation is your art form. Everybody has something that they just feel fully alive in. And I know plenty of very intellectual people that that is their art form. And I marvel at that. And I want to learn from them. I just don't want there to be this disintegration between you know, this whole of who God made us to be and let them see that is, that is a joy to other people to see their good thinking, but to also be able to feel like as somebody who gravitates to more right brain ways that I have something to contribute to their life as well, that they would be receptive and enjoy and give themselves an opportunity to enjoy and play in that. We have talked a lot about brain science 
on the show. And that's how Jim Wilder actually wrote the introduction to your book. And Jim has been on the show a few different times. But I have found that over the years, for those that aren't immersed in whole brain Christianity, we have to kind of stop and help them get their bearings for a moment. What do you mean by the difference between right-brained and left-brained Christianity? Well, as Jim would tell you, that's a real outdated concept, but it still works for for the rest of us. This is brain science for dummies right here. But, you know, we're the right brain is the relational, creative, emotional um, part of who we are. It's our attachment center where we bond. Our left brain is the logical linear processes. And as I'm sure Jim had shared shared with you, the right brain functions at six cycles a second. The left brain is only at five cycles a second. And then you add habits in there, which I'd been trained in all the spiritual disciplines and to cultivate those habits, the ancient practices that are reflected in scripture. Well, those are still mostly left brain they require language and um, very linear neurological processes well when things become a habit your brain processes them 200 times faster but that's still 200 times five versus 200 times six cycles a second of the right brain so this may be getting way too deep in the weeds but the bottom line is your right brain knows what's going on and registers For instance, when you walk in a room and there's a vibe, a negative vibe, your body and brain pick that up before anything else goes on in your left brain. Your left brain's always a beat behind. (laughs) And yet we act like we should lead with our left. So it's just taking that extra time and, and really connecting to ourselves so that we can enjoy others, enjoy God's presence with us in those moments and be available, be, Hmm. be all there. This seems to me as you're talking this and you mentioned walking into the room, suddenly I'm in church. I'm, I'm walking into a church or I'm at a church having been in leadership and someone walks in and they have this apprehensive look. They don't know what to do. It's their first time there. You try to greet them. You try to interact with them. And you talk to them after the service. I mean, they sit through the service. They seem to be participating. They're learning. They're growing. They leave, but they never come back. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I've talked to some of those folks over the years where they say, you know, we love the preaching. There was just something else. And usually it's the reading the room. They felt that they didn't belong. Even though yeah. the doctrine might have been right, all the other pieces were there. And this is something you're saying. Basically, it's almost intuition. Like we sense it before we know we're sensing it. Is that right? Yeah. And and I think part of what the church is struggling with is people sense that disconnect of, do you want a relationship with me? Like, do you want to know me and see me and understand me? That, I mean, that's a whole nother interview, but I know you've talked to Jim about this enemy mode stuff. Like if if people don't feel seen and known, heard, pursued, whatever, that is, they're not going to be transformed. The reveal and the reveal research and Barna have done just so much research on how we're transformed in lasting ways 
And it never happens apart from scripture and relationship, those two things. And you can't have a full relationship if people don't know your creative side. They don't know how you play. They don't know what you're curious about or what what strikes you with wonder. It's all that juicy part of life that we leave out of what we think of when we think of church or when we think of life with God that really needs a, a redirect in our, in our lives. This, I, I love where you're headed with this. And I wanted to draw out something that you mentioned early on in the book. You said that anyone who feels alone and afraid will shut down emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually. And this affects a relationships and capacity to mature, creating a negative consequences in the formation of character. So how do we though help Christians see this relational component, as you've already alluded to, this is vitally important. Transformation doesn't happen without the Spirit working through the Word of God, but also in the people that we're interacting with as this goes on. How do we help people to see and not only see it, but to actually embody, to make this part of who they are so that when they go into church or they're interacting with church, that they're not just coming in, getting goods and services and leaving. How do we help people to see this and and really bring it home that they can understand and and embody it? Well, I always, I have a hard time explaining this. So if I don't make it clear, (laughs) let me know. A lot of this is rooted in attachment theory and um, also something that Kevin Lehman and Jim Wilder and a bunch of folks, Marcus talks about um, attachment and Emmanuel, the Emmanuel process. It's really learning to be connected first with God, attached to God, because who or what we love most affects what we become. And that's true in our character as much as anything. So if we want to become disciples, we really need to be aware of who or what we love. We all have addictions. We all have things that we're passionate about. But we're not always aware of the, of the motivations of those things. So to really understand this love God has for us and to care to be connected with him just on the most basic level, first and foremost, is a really sweet, simple thing that anyone can do. I think I was going to say I was probably the most abusive to myself, but abusive is too strong of a word. I just think I neglected myself and Mm. neglect is a part of abuse. It's a part of trauma for a lot of people, but I just was not taught in church to pay any attention to my emotional world or what my body was trying to tell me. And reading books like The Body Keeps the Score and being aware of all the different processes of your brain and how your breathing um, can be affected by or can affect different parts of your central nervous system, really simple processes and things that the mindfulness movement has raised to the forefront and the church seems to be a little timid about. Those kinds of things have been really helpful to me to realize I have to be aware of my body. I have to be aware of my emotions before I can really extend compassion and empathy and connect with other people. That's the fullness of the relational part and the physiological part and the emotional part. 
I've come in contact, thanks to another friend of Jim Wilder's, Ed Corey, I've come in contact with, with what I call being grace brave. And Ed defines grace as the idea that you are special and favorite to God. And in the Western world, we're like, well, wait a minute, if you're special and you're a favorite, then I can't be. You know, God's not limited like that. But to understand grace as someone in this lofty divine position saying, you are my most favorite. Mm. I, I want you to soar. I want to launch you into this life that I've created with you. Um, that releases a bravery in me to think of. And if I'm in community where people know me and they know what lights me up and they want to champion that I'm grace brave. I can do it. I don't care if it's art and my drawing doesn't look as good as you think it should. I'm still brave enough to put it out there and be known and tell the story behind it that might bring God glory in just the story I tell. Talking about attachments. I mean, this yeah. this whole thing is is very fascinating to me, this idea of grace brave. I have so many questions from that. <laughs> going back for a moment, I want to talk yeah. about attachments. I know in the book, you alluded to Dallas Willard, if I remember correctly, where that was a big change for him. And he's been a huge guru in spiritual formation. I mean, he's with Jesus now and been for about, what, 10 years? Is that right? Something along that line? <laughs> 11 years. And I know that many people are still really enamorated by his his stuff because he really understood spiritual formation and how it occurs. And attachment is something that came to him much later in life where he was coming near the end and this concept of attachment and we're starting to understand it now, being attached to God. What does it mean to be in like an almost like a relational bond with mm -hmm. God? And we use sometimes different theological language, maybe in covenant, something along that line. I'm trying to recover some of the biblical language. But when we look at the scriptures, we see that we're to love God, we're to love each other. I mean, this is the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I see three loves there. Of course, there's the love for God. We know about the love for others, but we're to love our neighbors as we are to love and pay attention to ourselves and our own health when it comes to emotional and physical, all of these different pieces. Why do you think the church has a hard time with this idea of loving oneself in a mm. biblical way? And let's put it that way, put a little caveat, I mean, some parentheses around it to qualify it. There is a biblical love of self that is good. And of course, there's a bad love of self. <laughs> so this mm -hmm. biblical love of self, why has the church missed this? Hmm. And why? Oh, I got another question. I got three questions. So you have to answer this one first before I jump <laughs> on the next one. <laughs> I'm doing one first. Um, I don't know. I think it really depends on your theology. Like you could come at this a lot of different ways. Why does the church not understand the importance of beauty? You know, I, mm. I, don't, I think that's a more modern construct that we've defined, particularly in the West, you know, the mystic aspects of beauty and, you know, truth, beauty and goodness, all that are very hard for us. Love of self because we're not a real deep sort. <laughs> mm. I think particularly in the West, we've, we've, we go back to that topic of addiction. We, 
we are motivated by comfort and the church doesn't want to encourage comfort, especially since the Reformation, you know, heaven forbid that we should tip too far. Um, but, you know, at what cost are we ignoring the care for our souls? I I worked at a company working very hard um, to develop content to help encourage and nurture character in the souls of other people. And I realized it was at the expense of my own soul because the pace was just crazy. And, you know, we buy into that unless we start becoming aware and giving people that permission, holding that space for one another. Well, this is that idea, we talked about this in the pre-show, about the missionary encounter with our Western culture. As we see the values of our Western culture, expediency, quickness, uh, efficiency, creating more and more and more, we're all about doing and not necessarily being. And a part of that is a modern construct, too, because we have more leisure time and we're taught that if we're not doing something, then we're not contributing and we're not valuable. But God loves us for who we are and he's made us for who we are. And it's learning how to separate these things. I think that, as you've mentioned, the church has not done well historically, but there are people that are starting to see this idea of beauty. And we can be beauty and beauty poverty, if you will. We are attracted to it. It's yeah. just who we are as creative individuals and 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 the part that God has made us to, to be. But it's interesting. You you would also mention in your book, and I and I I feel like we've we've talked about this several times, but I think it's still very true. When you simply said spiritual information alone never resulted in anyone's transformation. Right. We need other people. How do we go about that if we don't find that in our churches? How do we find this group of people to be transparent with so that we can go beyond information to transformation? Because I really want to know. <laughs> this isn't just to ask you the question. I want to know. <laughs> Well, it's, I think we make it a lot harder than it is. I, I love the word. I love good teaching and all that. I don't think there's a deficit out there (laughs) for finding that should you want it. Um, But I talk about in the book that I'm in a group um, with a bunch of artists And we get together once a month and we talk about two things. We talk about how's your heart and how's your art. Mm -hmm. And if you think about art is just your vocation, it's what you're called to. Um, It's what you've committed your life to pursue. Those are those are two really significant questions. So we talk about how's our heart and we talk about how's our art. Then we listen and pray um, on our own and then come back together with any wisdom we have from scripture. Or if somebody feels like the Lord gave a word for one of us or a prayer for one of us, we, we do that. The only other thing I'd add is one of the wisest things I've, heard in a while is just the advice that um, instead of praying for someone, what I want to pray for them, I stop long enough to ask the Lord to help me connect with them and to pray however he's praying for them, to pray what he would pray for them or what he is praying for them rather. 
those things open up relationship. I have to relate to God before I know how to pray. And I have to really empathize and we can't stay in narcissism and empathize. We can't stay in fear and really experience relationships. So those are those ways, those questions have really drawn me out of a non-relational faith. Hmm. This relational faith, that's still very difficult for people yeah. today. Going back to the attachments, there are three core attachments. Is that right? To attachment styles, you asked this at the end of the book. Is it called styles, <laughs> attachment styles? Are those the only three attachment styles? There's secure, avoidant, and ambivalent. Yeah. Okay. Now, what do these look like? Can you describe those? Because I was reading it and I went, I'm, I need counseling. I, I'm yeah. serious. Like, I, I seriously, I read this to my wife and I'm like, what happens if you have all three of these? And I'm sure there's one. But I saw myself and I started to wonder, wait a minute, is that how I've gone about my Christian life? And yeah. why I have the issues that I have? Because you start to realize you can live at a surface level faith. Mm-hmm. You can say the right things. You can do the right things. You can stay in the lines. But the real deep parts of the transformation, as you said, if we don't reveal those parts of who we are, then we're never going to be transformed. Good or bad, by the way. This is where I think of Peter when Jesus is getting ready to wash his feet. And he's like, you know, what are you doing? He says, well, unless I wash your feet, you have no part for me. And he's like, well, wash my head. And he goes, well, just let me wash your feet. But mm-hmm. in other words, I need that part of who you are. I can't yeah. let that part go. Yeah. I need all of you to come to the table. And you mentioned that we leave things on the table. How do we help then people to rely and really open up all of who they are to this relationship with God and with other people? Well, you definitely have to feel safe. I'm not saying you have to be attached to everybody. That would not be healthy. But to really understand your attachment style If you, I mean, most of us have had trauma and trauma is a big buzzword these days. But if you understand, if you've undergone any kind of everyday trauma or neglect, sometimes, not sometimes, it is harder to heal and move, move toward other people because those are like everyday disappointments and, and ways you were overlooked that are just hard to resolve. People who are really highly trained experts would tell you it's, it's easier to treat a severe PTSD than it is somebody who's just been chronically neglected. So we have to understand attachment style and then start looking at where we've been trying to comfort ourselves in the choices that we've been making to avoid dealing with some of that stuff. I say that with a laugh, but it's no laughing matter. It's, it's hard work, but to do that and to do that in community is where we're going to find healing. Cause there's a saying, if you, whatever's been wounded in community can only be healed in community. If you've been wounded in church, that's the only place you're going to be healed is not in a building, but in a community of believing Jesus, loving you, loving people. <laughs> hmm. I I wonder, as you're saying that, I think of the people that have been deconstructing, but they all find each other. It's almost as if they're creating their own pseudo church 
to process the trauma that they've experienced together. And you wrote in the book, as you were talking about attachment styles, the avoidant insecure attachment, anxious insecure attachment, disorganized insecure attachment. And you said, hey, if any of these happen in community, that's the only place they can be healed. How do we help people create this safe environment, this safe community, so that people can experience this type of healing? I just suggest figuring out ways to cultivate authenticity for yourself. For me to become present and aware of what I was really going through (laughs) as far as my, my emotions and my body and just talk to God about, you know, I never realized how anxious I am. COVID will do that to you or whatever. And really working through that to just even say, I am some of those things is a big step for a lot of us. We just don't think that has anything to do with our life with God and asking him to show you is a big first step. And then bringing that out in the open with some trusted others. Beyond that, I think it's just modeling. And I do really appreciate Jim's work when he talks about the prevalence of narcissism in our culture is outrageous, but in the church, it's equally ridiculous. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to church and you don't want to be known, then don't bother going to church. Just watch on TV, but you're not going to experience the return of joy. You can't have joy by yourself. It's just, it's a relational brain skill. (laughs) So that sounds really harsh now that I'm listening to myself say it, but people think that, you know, gathering together is optional and I don't care if your group is three people or it's 300 people you have to put yourself in community God calls us to community and he knows that's where we rub the the rough edges off one another and he also knows that's where our heart finds joy so you gotta really make that a priority I don't think you're being harsh enough. Let's really give it to them. No, I I feel that I, I know that many pastors are wrestling with COVID and what it did and trying to find some semblance of normalcy and to be able to reach people where they are. That's yeah. why you see a lot of the online church, but the online church doesn't, it doesn't bring out the embodiment aspect. If you're looking at it just from a religious goods and services to belief, okay, but that's not what we see biblically where that transformation occurs. I understand reaching people where they are and hopefully bringing them in further. Now that's a process and it might involve that, but it's almost like for me, it's like, I'll give you fast food because that's better than starving. Yeah. And yet eventually it's going to hurt you in the long run. If you keep eating the fast food, because you're not designed to live off fast food. Yeah. It's designed to give a, you know, a craving, a little bit of a craving, but if you try to live off of it, it's going to really hurt you in the long run. Yeah relationally you mentioned each time uh, you have this these maker affirmations in the book uh-huh. tell it tell us why we have these maker affirmations and you bring out art quotes very few writers that i meet put that out there and yet you're doing <laughs> that and you actually encourage people to do different practices to calm themselves to quiet themselves you give pointers on what to do you even give a song playlist for them to to play with why was that so important and why is it so important for us to have something like that 
as we try to quiet ourselves to actually communicate with God in relationship? Well, in its simplest form, I believe the Lord wants connection on all levels with us. And if our body is working against that connection, it's it's good to be still so we can know he's God. Some of us don't realize how unstill we are. So quieting and trying to calm our nervous system and um, catch our breath accomplishes a lot. The really sweet thing that I love that I've learned through all of the research is that joy and peace are separate facets of the same thing. They both reside in the same place in our brain. And to me, that's just a perfect picture of shalom. And that's where God wants to meet us is in that wholeness. It is in us. The spirit of God is in us. And that shalom is in us. His presence is in us. So we just blow by that, that being. So that would be one aspect, you know, formation too, spiritual formation. There's a lot of opportunity to, to be quiet. And Dallas used to talk about silence and solitude being paramount to our walk with him, with Jesus. So it it is important to just have margin. But this whole book, I don't say it this way, but it is modeled after the Emmanuel lifestyle. It's modeled after the different levels of our brain. So if you follow these practices at the end of the chapter and you follow the progression of the chapters, you're working your way up through the different levels of the brain and repeating the skills that it requires when you're out of peace, you're out of joy, you're in some sort of fierce state. These are to bring you back to joy. Like Chris Corsi writes about the joy switch. Mine is is much simpler. <laughs> Again, we're talking about this stuff for dummies like me who just just want to find an ease and a rhythm to a creative life with God and invite other people. This is simple, simple stuff. Get, get present, get quiet, get aware, connect, attach to God and other people. We can't know ourselves. This is another facet. We can't know ourselves. We don't have an identity unless we receive our identity from who God says we are. And then it's reflected in the eyes of others. There's all kinds of brain science on on where our identity is formed, but it cannot be formed apart from community. There's just no way. That's why, as you said, it's the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God and the people of God as we're <laughs> learning these different things. And you've mentioned all the practices that are there. You also mentioned being in a fear state. <laughs> what do you mean by being in a fear state? There are seven emotions that are neuroscientifically accepted, not just in a Christian neuroscience world, but in a secular one. There is one of those seven is positive, and that is joy. Again, a secular word, which I think it's so cool that they call that joy. And that resides in your right prefrontal cortex, where all of your higher level thinking happens. It comes together there. Um, The rest are negative emotions. They're umbrella emotions 
fear resides over. So things like anger, sadness, hopeless despair, there's six of them and I'm going to blank three of them. <laughs> but all, all things that when you trace them back to the source, they're fear related. So joy and fear are kind of juxtaposed with one another. And you mentioned like, basically fear is ruling over all these other emotions. And when we're in a fear state, it's very hard to connect with God. Is that right? It's impossible. Like they've shown, they've shown it on fMRIs, the functional MRIs, that when you're in fear, you reside in the back of your brain. That's fear's bunker. But when you, when you can actually turn off fear, get back into a joy state, your brain can fully connect and fire on all cylinders, so to speak, as you deal with others. And even as you deal with things that you are right to be afraid of, you still know you're not alone. Fear puts us in a state of constantly feeling like I'm all alone. It's up to me. I got to fix this. I got to fix you. I got to make this go away. Every negative thing comes from being in a state of fear. So those just, I looked them up for you. Fear, anger, disgust, sadness, shame, hopeless despair. And then joy, joy, just to clarify for those that wanted to know, and they were trying to figure out what you were saying there. How do you differentiate between this fear state? And I love how you put it. It's the bunker where we kind of hide. I I love that description. That's a very good imagery. How do we juxtapose that against the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom? What type of fear is that? Is that a different kind of fear that we have? Because some people would say, hey, I'm fear of God. That's right. the right fear. But we're saying, no, 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 not that type of fear. Not that reverential fear. It's the awe, the wonder, the fear, as in he is an awesome God. He is all the different facets of his character beyond what we can imagine versus God who abandoned us or all the, the, the fear really just comes from us thinking we are all alone and we have to get whatever it is that we are clamoring after, whether it's position or money or attention whatever, because it's up to us. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's description in Narnia when the little girl needs water and the Mm -hmm. lion Aslan is drinking and she's so afraid of him that she won't come near. And she's like, well, I have to go find someplace else. And he's like, there is no place else. (laughs) And she's so afraid he's going to eat her. But, and she's like, will you eat me? He goes, there's no guarantee I won't. (laughs) Yes. There is this awe, as you said before, and with it, there's a trust that comes. Not, I I think there is a difference between fear as paralyzed. It paralyzes you because you don't trust. But then there's a fear of trust. Like I, I had a parental figure. My father passed away when I was quite young and Mm -hmm. my grandfather acted as that figure. And I had a fear of him, but I also, it was an awe. There was a love that went with that fear. And I think there's that same kind of idea that's there. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, you definitely. I mean, trust is there. Hope is there. All those capacities of, of his grace is the community of the Trinity is right there 
to help you get through stuff that otherwise you would think I'm never going to get through, but you have this peace Mm. as it is consistent with his character. What, what does fear do to the creative process? Oh gosh. I talked about this in the book and this is truly my own, my own articulation. I think that there is a very real thing called creative resistance and it's rooted in fear. It's rooted in comparison or not wanting to be known or feeling like you're not good enough or you're a poser or whatever, or even pride and competitiveness. But that part, that's creative resistance. I think there's a whole nother part that's a creative block. And those are things like we've overcommitted ourselves We aren't dealing with things that are shutting down our capacity to create. Like, I don't know, we're, we have, we know we have bills due and we're not doing work that would bring in the money that we could pay for those bills with or whatever, just really practical things that are creative blocks that should we turn our attention to them, we could resolve so that we can get about the creating that we're here to do. I think fear plays a very big part in both of those. But again, I distinguish between resistance and block. We can overcome the roadblocks. How do we go about overcoming those roadblocks? Just practical attention to them. Just carving out the time, carving out the resources, getting community around those if we need community. Like if I... (laughs) I don't know why this came to me, but if the place where I do my creating has become a place that I am hoarding so much stuff I can't work, maybe I'll need a little practical support from someone. I don't know. Terrible example, but they're just practical things you can do. Don't say yes to one more coffee until you need or until you get done what you need to get done creatively. Hmm. What role does gratitude play in this whole process? Gosh, gratitude is pretty foundational. So aside from stilling yourself, gratitude is super ground floor to understanding that you're not alone and that someone, specifically God, and frequently other people in your life are giving you a gift of whatever it is that you're thankful for. I heard Marcus Warner recently distinguishing between gratitude and appreciation. As appreciation, you actually let it kind of soak into your body. You feel it. He didn't say soak your body, but you actually feel things that you're grateful for. You stop and you make yourself space to really receive whatever it is, a blessing, a gift, a meal, the beauty, whatever it is. This is tangent, but I'm going to just say this because I love this quote. Brene Brown says, knowledge is just a rumor until it works into the bone. And that's probably a slaughtered quote, but it's an Aboriginal proverb that she has in her book. I think it's Endearing Greatly, but it's the same with our faith. You know, knowledge is just a rumor until it really it's in. down into the core of who you are. Yeah. Oftentimes on the show, we've talked about some of these modern 
iterations of things where we're talking about just life in the modern world where we're talking about gratitude and joy and still and quiet and not that the ancient world didn't have these practices but it seems now we have much more of a preoccupation with understanding the interior parts of who we are some do some don't right i mean there's the one part where you have no interaction whatsoever and you just go through life and you don't think about it yeah but i don't think that our grandparents were sitting around going, man, my parents were way off. They <laughs> led me through trauma. They they just didn't think that way. They didn't have the vocabulary that we have today, nor did they have the research and the ability. I mean, we've, we've come a long way since then. Yeah. Nevertheless, some people though still have a very hard time letting this inform their faith because they, they have a very hard time of seeing out anything that's not for lack of a better term, chapter and verse where it's not explicitly dealt with in the text itself. How do we deal or help people to see the need to talk about these things, even though previous generations may not have? Hmm. I I don't have a hard time with that. And I understand that people do. You know, there is pushback to this stuff. But when I look at the ways of Jesus, he was very present. He was very present to himself and he was very present to other people. He was very present to his emotions. Dallas has been quoted frequently as, and I, I heard him say this, he, somebody asked him what is one word he would use to describe Jesus. And he said, he thought for a second and he said, relaxed. I don't think I would have pulled that word out. Like that just wouldn't have been the first thing on my mind. But to really, truly feel relaxed, to feel at ease at home in our bodies and our souls is to be like Jesus, to have a sense of why we are here, our creative commission, a creative great commission. I mean, that's, that's who Jesus was and how he lived. And that's historically true. Integration, knowledge and creativity, thinking and imagination, walking with God and creating for God. We all have something to contribute to the furtherance of God's kingdom. It's wonderful and comforting to know that brain science is simply confirming the truths about who we are that the Bible has been teaching for millennia. We are makers, every single one of us in some capacity, and we need to be able to tap into the imagination in whatever way God has gifted us. If you're a poet, writer, or a conversationalist, maybe you're a podcaster, illustrator, sculptor, rapper, musician, or dancer, know that God has made you that way for a purpose. And he desires you to develop and use that for the glory of his name as you seek to water your world. Be sure to order Amy's book, Makers in a Thinker's World. It will Open your eyes to the truths of who God made you to be. And remember, it's the season for giving, and we need your gifts as God continues to reveal to us how he wants us to take the next step as an organization, helping equip others in their missionary encounter with Western culture. Help us to meet our goal of $53,000 before the end of the year. Simply click the link in the show notes or go to Apollos Watered and click the Support Us button. 
With that in mind, before we close our time today, I wanted to take a moment to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for all of those out there who have felt so long that they've been sitting at the kids' table. They've been relegated to the outer layers of the kingdom of God. Lord, help them to see how valuable they are and how you have creatively fashioned and gifted them to create, to make things, to tap into the imagination to help lead people to a greater knowledge of who you are. Be with them, encourage their hearts, and let them know how much you love them and want to use them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. I want to thank you for listening today, and I want to encourage all of those who are out there who are not yet our watering partners to simply go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, or simply click the link in your show notes as we seek to raise $53,000 before the end of the year so that we can take our next step as an organization, but also finish the year strong and ready to embrace all that is ahead. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And